This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. What goes up can also come down. Tech stocks rise looked unstoppable, but lately they've taken a tumble. What should investors make of the market's jitters? You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. I'm Patrick Lane, Deputy Digital Editor at The Economist. And coming up on today's show, Reed Hastings, co-founder and co-CEO of Netflix, on how to make TV by algorithm pay. We want to produce content that you, our members, want to watch. And so we measure it as how much watching does it get compared to how much it costs. And more countries and businesses say they want to reach net zero carbon emissions. But is that just a lot of hot air? The idea that if you unilaterally reduced your carbon production, that you'll then stop contributing to climate change. But that's just wrong, unless you're going to stop trading. The rise and rise of American stock markets has faltered. The technology-heavy Nasdaq index fell by more than 3% on Tuesday's opening, and that came after consecutive falls on Thursday and Friday for the tech stocks that drove a record-breaking summer. Investors who had hoped that the long Labor Day weekend would calm fears about further falls will still be feeling anxious. So last week, the S&P 500 was down 2.3%. The Nasdaq was down 3.3%, led by all of the big tech stocks. So Tesla, Amazon, Google, Microsoft, Facebook. Alice Fullwood is The Economist's Wall Street correspondent. And that has continued this morning. Uh, the Nasdaq opened down more than 3%, led by all those big uh, tech names, which were largely down more than 5%, um, and in particular Tesla, which was down almost 20% when it opened this morning. At the end of last week, Alice, there were reports that part of the explanation, both for the run-up and then this this sell-off in tech stocks, lay to some extent in the role of SoftBank. Now, SoftBank is a Japanese conglomerate. It's very well known as a long-term investor in tech companies. What seems to have been its role in this episode and what do you think has been going on? So on Friday, the Financial Times reported that SoftBank had bought an enormous derivative on American tech stocks. They'd spent $4 billion worth of premium buying a call option, which gave them about $50 billion worth of exposure to American tech stocks. And the way this was described was sort of as a as a bet on tech stocks going higher. And because it was in such enormous size, it took hold as a potential cause for this unusual behaviour in this summer where tech stocks have rallied sharply and slightly confused people because it didn't necessarily seem 
completely linked to sort of fundamental drivers of the value of these tech companies. And so people have been looking for an explanation for why tech stocks have rallied so sharply and this soft bank story seemed to fit the bill. How much credence do you give to this theory? I think it's possibly not the main driver of what's happened. Um, This is partly because the derivatives that SoftBank bought were very, very long dated, which gives them a sort of different exposure to the stock market. It's not necessarily just a bet on stocks going higher. It's more nuanced than that. It would mean that the banks that SoftBank bought this derivative from would be reasonably sort of hedged in their position. And so there wouldn't be this dynamic of SoftBank have bought this derivative and therefore as share prices go higher, banks need to hedge that and offset that by buying more and more tech stocks, uh, which actually is the story with a different type of derivative that's been generating a lot of headlines recently, which is the derivative trading that's been going on in Robinhood. And I still think that actually the sort of retail Robinhood option story is probably more meaningful for tech stocks having gone higher over the summer than the SoftBank story. Okay, can you explain that second theory a bit more, what's been going on with retail investors? Right. So over the summer, there's been this trend of retail investors increasingly buying up derivatives on tech companies in particular. Data from one of the sort of big options data providers says that small retail investors have spent $40 billion worth of premium on derivatives that give them exposure to rising tech stocks. And the type of derivative they're buying is is quite different to the one that SoftBank bought. And they're basically buying very short dated sort of one week or two week call options. And they're buying them unhedged. And what that means is that when they buy these options, the banks that sell them to retail investors are forced to hedge their positions by buying shares in the companies that these investors are betting on. And as share prices rise, uh, because of the nature of the sort of short dated options that they've bought, that forces banks to buy more and more of those shares. And so you can get this sort of very momentum driven dynamic as a result of these very short dated options that retail investors are interested in buying that actually could explain why slightly strange things have been happening. So, for example, usually when the price of a of a share rises, the volatility associated with that share goes down. But what happened over the summer is that prices rose and volatility rose. And that sort of is suggestive of this more momentum driven dynamic um, that seems to be more applicable to the types of derivatives that retail investors are buying rather than the ones that sort of SoftBank was buying. And do we know why that appears to have come to a stop? It's kind of unclear what happened at the end of last week. There was reportedly sort of very heavy selling by big financial institutions over the past few days. And that suggests that perhaps, you know, the big experienced investors finally thought that that enough was enough. These companies were overvalued and that they were happy to sort of either underweight them or even go short those companies. It's not really clear that there was any one trigger for why this, this trend might have come to an end. I guess what is key now and what we'll see through the rest of this week is whether if the the real driver of this sort of bubbly, frothy dynamic in markets really was driven by retail investors buying these short data options, then that sort of momentum may very quickly unwind and you may see a bigger pullback towards the end of the week. There's been some talk about a, a, a tech wreck, possibly because, you know, that rhymes. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's very good. It's too early to tell whether that's true or not, isn't it? 
Yes. I mean, the fall in the value of these companies has not been nearly as significant as the rise. Take Tesla, for example, it's still up 400% year to date. So there has been this pullback, but it's not undermined that entire trend yet. Although there are these sort of strained, frothy dynamics that we've talked about, um, there are some good reasons you could point to underlying fundamental reasons why some tech companies are worth more now than they were at the beginning of the year. Whether they're worth quite what they are priced at now, we will find out over the coming weeks. Alice Fullwood, thank you very much. Thank you, Patrick. Next... Subscription streaming services are among the few beneficiaries of the pandemic, chief among them Netflix. The American streaming giant added 26 million new subscribers in the first half of 2020. But it has bills to pay. Its spending on original programming has ballooned and faces stiff competition from the likes of Amazon, Hulu and now Disney. So how much more can Netflix grow? The co-founder and co-CEO of Netflix, Reed Hastings, is Anne McElvoy's guest on our sister podcast, The Economist Asks, this week. They started by talking about the unorthodox management culture at Netflix. It's the subject of his new book, No Rules Rules. He calls it a unique cultural experiment, but it has also gained Netflix a reputation for ruthless firing policy. We model ourselves on professional sports, where you want the team to really work well together and to play their heart out. Everybody's playing for their position, and that's how you get championship performance, is being able and willing to take the tough steps. So you're known for data-driven decisions. Where does that leave creativity? To level with you, really, Reid. I mean, this is something I hear a lot from program makers, including some who uh, have made programs for Netflix uh, and for other big streaming services, that they think over time that focus on data and the algorithm damages or impedes their creativity or narrows it to outside perhaps their original intentions. What do you make of that? Well, it's a good thing for uh, competitors to say about us, but it's not true. I mean, if you look at, um, you talk to Peter Morgan about the crown, you know, he's trying to produce a great story. Um, If you talk to the producers of sex education, it wasn't because of any particular data that they did certain casting decisions. You know, we really support the creative process. Most of our industrial culture is not really focused on creativity. It's focused on error prevention. And that's good if you're an airline or a hospital. Okay, but if you're a creative organization, what you want to do is make it safe for people to make mistakes and to try things. Are you absolutely clear what's a hit and what's a miss? Or is it a little bit by the the data is obviously guiding you with a balance between the data and your gut in the sense of... I feel this, I'd go on with it even if the numbers aren't right. Would you do that? You know, fundamentally, Netflix is about pleasing people. And we want to produce content that you, our members, want to watch. And so we measure it as how much watching does it get compared to how much it costs. Um, And in that way, we try to spend our our members' money well, producing content that they really want to watch. You've had a silver lining to the cloud of COVID-19, and that's this huge subscriber uh, surge as we were glued to our sofas even more. uh, 26 million up to June 2020. Spectacular. How much can Netflix still grow? This was the subject, and you may have seen it, of a big cover story that that we we ran with our own in-house experts doing the, the analysis on that. And one of the theses that uh, emerged from that was that 
that growth in America was going to be difficult for you and you, you would need you need to sort of basically crunch around the world like that mutant monster sort of getting into and hoovering up markets for new growth coming from overseas. Do you think that's a correct analysis, broadly speaking? No, I think that's a horrific metaphor. I added the metaphor. Yeah, so um, we definitely want to serve people all over the world because then by sharing that content everywhere, we create a little more understanding and that creates a, a big opportunity for us for sure. But it also provides you know many human beings with the best entertainment that they've ever seen. But it's very competitive. I mean, Disney Plus has grown to over 60 million members in you know less than one year. It took us, you know, 12 years to get to 60 million. I mean, they're on a phenomenal growth. So there'll be a lot of competition as everyone realizes the internet is the way to go. Now, one reason that you have to to grow is because you have borrowed very heavily to finance filmmaking as of uh, June Netflix is over $15 billion in debt. And you're surely relying on growth to, to service um, that, I mean, does that occasionally make you kind of wake up thinking that's a lot of overhang in money owed? That is a lot of money for sure. But uh, fortunately, we have so many members around the world that uh, our bonds are all uh, traded up. And so that market that finances that activity is uh, very happy with the results for Netflix. And that, as you say, that is it's traded up. The company needs money to bank real new content, but there are still longer standing concerns that that rise in, in, in revenues won't offset a slowing subscriber growth in America, the biggest market. Well, if there are concerns, they're not shared by the bondholders, who again are, are voting with their feet to trade up those bonds. So what we really focus on is, you know, is the internet going to grow or shrink over the next 10 years? Well, people are pretty confident it's going to grow. Uh, do people like a lot of television? I mean, all around the world, people like television. So, you know, you put those two things together, internet and television, and there does seem to be an opportunity for Netflix to continue to offer more shows and more different types of entertainment. And how many big streaming services can the American market realistically support? I'm thinking of Jeffrey Katzenberg's much rated short video subscription venture, Kubi, which has floundered. Did you learn anything from watching that struggle? And is there any future for it? You know, the market's always open to innovation. TikTok has grown from, you know, very small three years ago to enormous. Um, and so there's always new ideas. And that's great for consumers because you get many choices. And so whether it's uh, TikTok and YouTube or whether it's uh, Netflix and Disney, there is a, a lot of competition in the market. And Disney, you think, has learned new tricks pretty quickly. You sound like you're something of an admirer about what's been going on over there. Well, I fear them. I admire them. Um, it's a complicated mix of emotions. Um, there's nothing I can do about it. I know that competition is good generally, but when it's your own competition, it doesn't necessarily feel good. But uh, they have done an impressive job. And of the major streaming players, who do you think will be the, the survivors? And we're looking at problems that AT&T has had with Warner Media. HBO Max didn't exactly get off to flying start. A lot of key executives were, were, were dumped pretty quickly. Is that an example of where you can see an endgame for certain kinds of streaming content and certain sort of companies who are trying to get into it? Well, if you look at the book market, if you look at the magazine market, there's always new offerings coming. 
And I think it'll be like that, which is where there's fresh stories to be told that people want to watch, then you can address a, a very big and global opportunity. And if you look at the BBC in particular, um, you know, the iPlayer was one of the first um, public broadcasters to have an internet service. Um, they've had the iPlayer for over a decade and they lead the public service market all around the world with the use of the iPlayer. So that's been a great uh, asset for the BBC. And eventually, I think the BBC will be very strong, but entirely consumed over the internet. And so think of it as just an evolution from linear to on-demand. What about the BBC licence fee model? It's often voted in the BBC debate, which goes on endlessly uh, in in Britain, is it should be more like Netflix. It was basically moved to a subscription model. Or would you be a defender of the idea of the effectively a tax, a, a levy on everyone to watch the BBC or listen to? Well, I would like Netflix to get the BBC model. We should have uh, to be mandatory membership in the UK for Netflix. That would be great. I'll see if, uh, okay, we'll see if we can get that one off the ground, Fima. <laughs> that's right. Thank you very much for joining us. Reed Hastings. Pleasure. You can hear that interview in the next episode of The Economist Asks, which comes out on Thursday, September the 10th. It's definitely worth a listen. Reed Hastings also talks about the ever hotter competition in streaming, the barriers to getting into the Chinese market, and even Netflix's latest blockbuster, a deal with Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, aka the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. So subscribe to The Economist Asks on your podcast app to listen to that. And for more analysis of Netflix, its strengths and its weaknesses, check out the forthcoming edition of The Economist in print and online. If you're not a subscriber yet, it's very easy to become one. Just go to economist.com slash podcast offer and the link is in the show notes. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And finally, the idea of countries one by one cutting their carbon emissions to net zero has become something of a holy grail for climate campaigners. A year ago, Britain became the first leading economy to pass a law committing itself to this target, and it set itself a deadline of 2050. But how much does this promise to cut carbon production on home turf mean for what is fundamentally a global problem? The idea that if you unilaterally reduced your carbon production on a territorial basis, that you'll then stop contributing to climate change. But that's just wrong, unless you're going to stop trading. Dieter Helm is an economist at Oxford University and the author of Net Zero, How We Stop Causing Climate Change. I spoke to him alongside Guy Scriven, our climate risk correspondent. So, Dieter, you've thrown kind of cold water on the idea that a policy goal aimed at reaching uh, net zero domestic carbon emissions is a kind of useful way to contribute to stopping global warming. Why do you think it doesn't make sense? Well, 
When uh, in the UK we were discussing net zero and whether to do it, at the same time there was a crisis in British steel. And the question was, should the government bail out British steel or let it fail? Well, if you really want to get territorial carbon production down, the quickest way of doing it would be to close the steel industry. In fact, get rid of all the energy intensive stuff that you've got in the economy and import it instead. What will happen? Your carbon production will go down, tick in the box, aren't we doing well? Your carbon imports, your carbon consumption will go up. And that's a microcosm of what's been going on for the last 30 years in Europe as a whole. I mean, we've all been deindustrializing. Almost all energy intensive investment in the world now is outside the EU, not inside the EU. There's hardly any energy intensive investments at all in Europe. And essentially what we've been doing and what the world's been doing is buying the consequences of the massive expansion of China. And it's been an energy intensive, carbon intensive industrialization on a scale never seen to mankind. It is the biggest cause of climate change on its own since 1990. And it's for us because we're doing the consuming. So that's the point. You have to look at carbon consumption, not carbon production, if you want to be unilateral. Dieter, in the book, this shift from the focus on the producer to the focus on the consumer is very clear. What does that mean for people in, in everyday life, the sorts of changes that they're going to have to undergo, the sort of price changes that they'll, they'll have to face? It seems as if that's a, a message that you seem to think people just haven't been prepared for yet. I don't think they're prepared. And I don't think politicians are willing to tell people. Since we're not paying the price of our pollution, it follows axiomatically almost that we're living beyond our environmental means. And, and the way I try to get people to understand this, I say, why don't you start filling in for yourself what you think your daily carbon budget looks like? So from the moment you get up in the morning, you know, even using the loo paper has carbon involved in it. You go to breakfast, there's palm oil coming from the rainforest, there's the fertilizers going into the cereals, there's the pesticides, and that's before you start traveling. If you genuinely want to be in a net zero world, all that carbon has to go. And that tells you that it's impossible to envisage that the current lifestyle and the current unsustainable standard of living can be lived. And the politically almost impossible point is that it's you and me that are the polluters and an efficient economy the polluter pays. And therefore, you and I will have to pay. You argue that it's time for the consumer to fit the bill. Uh, how, how would that work? I mean, is there a way of changing the net zero concept to uh, make it kind of more useful and actually put us on a sustainable pathway? The costs are large, whatever the, the activists say, this isn't a free lunch. So we want to find the lowest, lowest cost way of doing that. And at the heart of that is a carbon tax, a price for the pollution. It's not enough in itself, but it's at the heart of it. And you have to pay that price on all the activities in the economy. So transport and agriculture included. And you have to apply it at the border. So all imports are treated like all domestic production. The climate, the concentration of carbon in the atmosphere is the balance of what we put up into the atmosphere and what nature takes out of the atmosphere. And so we need to think of both sides of the equation with a universal carbon price and apply that at the border. 
If you do that, you can unilaterally be sure that when you get to net zero carbon consumption, you will not be causing any more climate change. But that is radically more demanding than net zero territorial carbon production with no border adjustment. But how do you do that in reality? It's incredibly hard to measure the amount of carbon embedded in trade. Uh, Would a carbon border adjustment tax just mean very high administrative costs? Is there an easy way to do it? What you need to do with the carbon border tax is not get bogged into trying to describe what a perfect tax would look like and then work out the full administration consequence of that. No taxes are like that. What you want to do is be roughly right rather than precisely wrong. So first of all, you go for the big ticket items. Okay, and they're basically about five of these. Aluminium, steel, petrochemicals, fertilisers, things like cement. And then over time, you can add more as you go forward. You say on the tax, right, the steel's coming from China rather than from British steel. We have a price of carbon and a tonne of steel from China since it's about 70% coal base for its energy system. We can get a rough and ready reckoning. However, if you want to not pay you, the Chinese company, the money to the British government for the carbon embedded in it, you can have a carbon tax yourself and have a credit at the border and you don't need to pay it. It's like tariff negotiations. Anybody else who has a carbon price roughly the same as ours, the border tax would not be applied. So let's try it out. Let's be a bit less precisely wrong. And then we can gain from the experience. That's really interesting. Patrick. And this is an area where the informational shortfall and the institutional apparatus could come into conflict. For example, you can easily imagine the United States, for example, saying, we're going to put a very high carbon tax on these Chinese imports because they're so they're so dirty. We want to bring them up to what we think the carbon price ought to be. But what they're really doing is protecting American producers. It seemed to me that you were saying almost if you don't need an institutional framework because one person's unilateral tax will lead to another's. I'm not quite sure that's true. So this is a trade issue. And my starting point is not to price carbon is a massive distortion of international trade. And you have all these debates about Brexit trade, whether different animal welfare standards will distort trade. Well, this is the big one. You know, we don't want to import cattle on cleared bits of the rainforest into the UK when we're trying to decarbonise at the same time. But the institutional structure is no more than that. What you do not need is all the uh, scaffolding that's around the kind of UN COP type circuses year by year. So this is about unilateral policy and it's about the rules of trade. And I'm afraid the environment is now right up front in all trade negotiations. Whether you think the WTO is up to it, the WTO does have in its framework allowance for taking environmental things into account. It should actually be centre stage. Dieter Helm and, of course, Guy Scriven, thank you very much. Thank you both. Well, thank you very much for, for having me on. And that's all for this episode of Money Talks. Please do take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really makes a difference. I'm Patrick Lane, and in London, this is The Economist. <laughs>